Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits, people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, today, my guest is Steve, and he's a member of Smart Recovery Australia, and he'll be talking about how the Smart Recovery approach has helped his recovery from a reliance on alcohol. So welcome to the show, Steve. It's good to be here. Thanks, Bill. So in the show, we usually talk about recovery from compulsion and addiction and the events that influenced our life. Uh, we usually start from early childhood and as you were growing up. So talk about when you're exposed to problematic drinking and when you found recovery. So to start off with, uh, we'd like to give us an insight into your family and formative childhood teenage years. Yeah, I was truly blessed. Uh, Nolan and Bob, my parents, are fantastic, uh, loving parents who would have uh, worked themselves into the ground to give me opportunities. They did have a bit of a funny relationship as far as the kids and alcohol were concerned. I think they were a little bit too open with it. But apart from that, they were, they were amazing. And I, like I say, I was very blessed. I myself, I was a difficult child. I was, I've always been a little bit disturbed. Uh, <laughs> and it's not something I've been able to escape from throughout my lifetime. So that did make life difficult for them. Yeah, so I guess to start off with, did you have any siblings? Yes, I had an older brother and sister. Again, very fortunate. Uh, I love my brother and sister very much. And uh, my big brother is a bit of a hero to me. So, yeah. Okay. So I guess being a bit difficult must have been a little bit problematic at school. So what was that like for you? Uh, it was problematic everywhere I went. I, I just never could get on with anyone, whether they were in authority or whether they were one of the minions like myself, I couldn't get on. And I was very lonely. I was often very agitated. And I often caused people around me to feel very agitated. So did you get a diagnosis of anything about that? These days there's a lot of them. Yeah, I've got diagnoses now, yeah. which I came by rather late in life. They did send me somewhere when I was young, but no diagnosis was offered at that stage. Um, yeah, the teachers sort of spotted me staring out the window a lot and thought I might be autistic, and it turns out they were probably right. Yeah, so I went along for that, but nothing uh, nothing came to light when I was young, unfortunately. Right, okay. So when did your problems start for you? You know, how, how early did you realise that you were diff different? Yeah, different or, or problematic. I, I fell in with a bunch of uh, young fellas at about the age of 12 or 13. So by the time I was 13, we were all drinking heavy. I think I probably did hit it a bit heavier. I remember waking up surrounded by uh, vomit and blood and stuff like that uh, at, at a very young age. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that happened on a few occasions. I think, though, by the time we were... 
probably 15, 16, uh, or, or especially at the time, you know, we were getting our car licenses and stuff like that, that uh, I was doing things that they weren't. They were out surfing. I was on the beach getting stoned and they would come and they would have to sort of drag me off the beach. I wouldn't be able to walk off the beach. So, yeah, very early I realised I was different, I guess. Yeah. So what was your earliest exposure to alcohol? You said you mentioned your parents had a problem. Yeah, yeah, they, they were very happy with that. My sister used to come home while she was doing the HSC and pour herself a brandy uh, to de-stress, yeah. And uh, my brother started going to the pub when he was about 14 and they were, they were older than me and there was parties of like 300 young people in the backyard all sort of, uh, you know, drinking hard and I'd run around and I'd actually steal beer off them for my dad. The sort of... Um, my brother and sister's friends would give me little sips and stuff like that. And my sister remembers at a very early age that I was I was at dinner and I was allowed to have some wine and she kept filling my wine glass and she found me uh, drunk sitting on the fence with the cat. Uh, I don't know how young I was, but apparently pretty young. Right. <laughs> That's a funny story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So what did it do for you? What did alcohol make you feel like? Mm, I think... Initially, it probably made me feel like I was part of something. And I'd never really felt like I was part of something until then. Uh, do you want to sort of elaborate on that? Just Well, just that I, I was just so lonely. And all of a sudden, I was in a backyard with a bunch of young blokes getting drunk and, uh, you know, uh, playing up. And I, I felt part of the group. And that was good for me. Yeah. Did it affect your relationships in the group? Uh, yes, it did. Uh, I mean, as we got further along, like when we were all young and getting drunk, it was really normal. The things that happened were really normal. But as they started to mature, yeah, I'd go along, I'd get drunk, I'd end up naked at the party and uh, stuff like that. And I was really starting to get too old for that to be the case. So how did that make you feel? Uh, I'm sure it made me feel ashamed. Back then, I wouldn't have been able to admit I felt ashamed or embarrassed. I, I didn't have a, a full awareness of different feelings. I didn't have a full aware, awareness of different feelings that I, I had back then, although I must have experienced them for sure. Yeah. Did you seek out alcohol as a, as a way to feel better? Or was it just part of life? I, I mean, it was very much part of life, very much part of community. You know, everyone that I knew was doing it uh, and everyone that I knew that was a few years older than myself was doing it. And I just thought that's the way things went. It was never a choice. Yeah. Were your parents sort of concerned that you were drinking at such a young age or was that just a follow-on from your siblings? Yeah, I, look, I, I, my parents were a little bit naive. I think they'd send you along to a party, you're 13 years old, and they'd tell you that you could have one drink. Uh, but look, very, very soon I started to party very hard. And even though I left school when I was 14, I can remember going to school with my bag on a Friday morning and not coming home to Sunday afternoon. Uh, and my parents really didn't have much of a clue where I was during that time. So I think they should have been more concerned. Uh, in fact, I get angry about it sometimes. But yeah, yeah, the, the concern that should have been there wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of can go both ways in real terms. If people are constra constrained too much, they break out. And, <laughs> so. and I think that's what they were scared of. I mean, they certainly weren't trying to do me any harm and they weren't trying to 
be negligent. I just think uh, they ended up being negligent in that sense. Yeah. So leaving school at 14 then, it must have been fairly difficult to get a, a job. Did you find that? Oh, no, I was straight into work. Uh, I, I started work at the RSPCA uh, at the age of 14. And I worked there for about eight months. And then I went and worked on some horse studs and, and stuff. I've been through a lot of jobs in my lifetime. Okay. So did that give you sufficient income to live independently or were you still living with your mum and dad? Oh, I was still living with my mum and dad up until about the age of 18. I was married very young uh, and had a breakup almost straight away. I'm still with the same girl now. But I had a breakup almost straight away, and that's when I moved out of home. Okay. So I guess then, yeah, talking about relationships, did did your alcohol consumption affect your relationships? I think it affected uh, them a, a great deal. I remember before before I stopped last time, uh, looking down the lounge at my wife and just seeing her sitting at the other end and realising how very alone she was. Because yeah, you know, I wasn't about anyone else when I was drinking, and I know that when my sons were coming, were coming of age, our 15, 16, they might come home and uh, I'd be cooking dinner, but I'd be on the floor, and all you could see was a glass of sherry waving above the countertop, and I'd I'd finish cooking at that stage, someone else would have to take over, and I think that must have been yeah horrible for them to see and I think at times uh, their friends probably saw me in that state as well which would have been embarrassing yeah it is my dad was an alcoholic and it it, it is although other people sort of forgive that behavior as transient mm. most of the time mm. which is which is quite yeah. funny in a way um well, I'm very fortunate they don't hold it against me yeah that's good yeah so getting married then did your wife realise you had a drinking problem when you got married? I, I don't think she really did. We, we met at a church youth group and uh, there had been some drug use and some alcohol use uh, during the time that we'd been going out. But um, uh, even at that age, I was, I was trying to sort of move away from that. And so she probably didn't know the extent of it. Yeah. Okay. So how soon in the marriage did it become apparent that alcohol and and or drugs were a problem oh look i think um it would have been very early on i think i was working at a, a bottle shop and coming home with uh with, with wine every night and i think um my brother-in-law was giving me drugs and uh so i was smoking dope every night as well so i think um pretty early on that that, that should have been uh she should have been aware of that i probably wasn't aware of it as a problem as sage yeah. Now, a few people are. Yeah. <laughs> and if they are, they just deny it. It's, you know, it's pushed back. Yeah. So did she try and change you to stop you? No, I've got the, I've got the most accepting wife in the world. She didn't try uh, to really stop me. Uh, well, probably we're going back about 10 years now, 10, about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, probably uh, she started to sort of, my, my drinking was really off the hook. And then she was starting to get concerned. So how did your drinking affect your work? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, because I've got mental health issues too, and that's affected my work, uh, along with a bad attitude, I think, as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember 
I was working as a youth worker and I wouldn't go to work drunk, but I'd certainly go to work hungover, uh, which would make it hard to really give the energy to the job it deserved and give the energy to the team that it deserved. And that's really quite something I feel very sad about. It was an important career to me and it came to an abrupt halt. Um, I never really understood why, but I think probably that had a lot to do with it. I wasn't in as best a space as I could have been. No, probably not a good influence on the youth. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like I say, I wasn't, I wasn't coming there drunk, but people, you know, with any sort of mouse would have realised I was badly hungover, yeah. It's hard to hide, isn't it? Uh, so I guess the other one is having young children then, did your drinking change when you started getting a young family? Look, I, I think my drinking ebbed and flowed a lot. And, look, I, I think there were certainly nights that my wife uh, would usher the kids off to bed as I started to get a bit more inebriated and stuff like that. But um, there, there, were, there were seasons that were really bad and those sort of times when I was with the family when I was young, when we weren't broken up or anything like that, I don't think I was in too bad a spot at that stage. I mean, I'd get in a bit of trouble. From the wife, uh, we'd go somewhere and I'd take off and I'd be drinking all day and, and drugging and she'd, uh, she'd go home and leave me or something like that. But I, uh, it wasn't the bad stuff that I look at. Was, they weren't the bad times. Yeah. So would you call yourself a binge drinker? I certainly uh, do binge, but I think I probably binge too often to call it binging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So did you go through a, um, a character change when you got drunk? No. Actually, uh, I was probably at my most peaceful uh, when I was drunk. It probably helped ameliorate some of my mental health effects. And uh, so when I was drunk, I really just sat there quietly most of the time and uh, might sing a song or stare into the fire, uh, might send someone a message saying how wonderful I think they are. Yeah, I, I wasn't a mean drunk at all. Okay. Well, that, that's a positive thing. I think I think the mean, mean drunks have a big impact on their family. Yeah. 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 It, um, it gets pretty ugly. All right. So as you were, you know, getting your own family and stuff, did your parents then start taking more interest in you as a, as a father? Look, I think... Um, they became pretty disappointed in me uh, pretty pretty quick. You know, we had a breakup a few months into uh, after my first daughter was born, uh, and then a breakup again a few years later. And I think uh, really they were just massively disappointed. So, how did your wife take the breakup? Sort of losing contact with the grandparents. With, with my mum and dad, yeah. well, she didn't really have to lose contact with them. She was able to stay in contact with my mum and dad and uh, they, they did act rather badly and they tried to buy the baby uh, in the first place. But, um, but you know, apart from that, you know, they were pretty good to her and, and stayed pretty close because they wanted their grandkids in their life. Yeah. yeah, I think it's pretty hard to lose your, lose your grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, um, uh, Steve, we might take a short break. Accent of women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. 
accent women what's a border they don't see it like a big wall right along the how the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives accent women a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds every monday from 11am on community radio 3cr You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today I'm talking with Steve and we're talking about recovering with the help of Smart Recovery Australia. Um, so, Steve, um, before the break, we were talking about parenting and children and mm. difficulties in relationships and things. Yes. So can I ask you, what, what was the thing that caused you to look at your drinking and seek help? I think it was during the uh, second separation from my wife, um, and I spent over a year uh, just drunk, just horribly drunk every day and nothing working out whatsoever. And I was pretty primed to get health, help at that stage, but I didn't know how to get it. I didn't, uh, I, I was unaware really about counselling and probably pretty uh, sceptical about it. Um, I ended up getting help from a, um, from, from a cult, from a, uh, from a Christian from a Christian Pentecostal cult. That's not to say all Christians or all Pentecostals are in a cult. Just this one was a cult. And um, I, I'm pretty thankful to them. It was a rough time. It was a rough five and a half years that I spent with them. But I was sober all that time. And I worked jobs all that time. And uh, it did a lot for me in many ways. So what sort of things kept you sober there? Look, we were busy. Uh absolutely busy the whole time we did a lot of uh street preaching and we did a lot of street drama and we we're always heading off somewhere on the weekends to to do some drama somewhere or um to, to preach somewhere or we were having uh night after night we'd have different sort of rallies and we'd get together and have those rallies and there was a lot of uh comradeship uh you had the sense that you were in something great together that you were doing something great together so how did the wheels fall off? I realised I was in a cult. <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, it was great to stay sober. It was great to keep my family together or, or put my marriage back together. It was great in a number of ways. But uh, ultimately, I would have ended up giving them my house. I would have ended up being very controlled. And I didn't see that as something I wanted for my whole life. It was very hard to make the escape. But uh, I, I ballsed up and I did it. Yeah. So you mentioned your family was in it too. Were they able to extricate themselves as well? Yeah. When, when I left, it wasn't too hard. We were able to go to another Pentecostal church for a while, which sort of softened the fall. And then we went to the Salvos, which softened the fall even further, you know. So leaving that, did that affect your drinking? It was slow. Uh, I certainly started drinking again. Uh, it took a number of years to heat up and get really bad. And that's, 
I mean, I would certainly, if I had a bottle of whiskey, drink a whole bottle of whiskey, uh, but it wasn't every day, you know, so it didn't really seem like a major problem at first. And I don't think it really became a major problem after then until maybe 17 years ago. Okay, so what's that about uh, after another sort of five years or? or... Probably more than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So by, by the time I was in my late 30s, I started to have problems again. Okay. Timeline is an issue for me, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> Just trying to get it in my head. Um, so I guess now that you've got a bit more time that you're not... Um, you're not out doing activities. So we are back at work? Uh, work was sporadic. Uh, but, yeah, I had started the career. I started the career uh, as a youth worker. So I finally got myself off the tape and got myself educated and worked a range of youth work jobs, and I was, I was pretty proud of that. But I had a massive manic episode in 2004, uh, which ended my career and stopped me from working. Uh, and I've never really sort of um, made it back after that. Uh, I've tried, but I've never really sort of uh, become successful again from that time on. So was that a, um, I'm going to say mental health and drug use and alcohol use are very much, to me, integrated. They go hand in hand. Yeah, they go hand in hand. And um, I know that some organisations see alcoholism as a family disease because alcoholic families breed alcoholic attitudes and mm. um, sort of normalise stuff like that. Um, and it is a bit insane living in an alcoholic family because mm. all the rules, there's no rule, the rules bend and change all mm. the time. So you never really know which way is up. Um, so having that episode then, did that take all your confidence? You know, did that sort of make you withdraw? Uh, it certainly broke me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is the one time I was able to get myself together enough to really be making it in life. And, um, yeah, um, th that, that completely shattered me. I didn't go straight to the booze after that. I spent a year where I didn't drink at all and uh, lost a lot of weight and got very fit, unfortunately, um, at about in about late 2005, I had a beer, and after that, it got very muddy. What about friendships around this time? Did you were you able to develop friendships? The French friendship has always been hard. Uh, like I had some mates when I was young. Uh, yeah, we were part of a group where we we drank and did drugs together. But I've really struggled to make friends um, my whole life. So I, so I tend to make friends through going to a church or something like that. And it's, it can be a little bit, yeah, they're being your friend because they need to be your friend because you're coming to their church. It's a little bit not yeah. really what you're looking for, but it's this it's connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all need connection, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah. So what, what did you do then? What sort of action did you take being in this situation when you started drinking again? Did you look, look for help again? Yeah, I did. I started uh, with AA. Um, I probably originally went to AA in about 2002 and just had a bit of a look at it and didn't come back to it for a few years. Uh, 
you know, I think about 2005, I started to give it a real attempt at AA to quit drinking. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it just it just wouldn't take. I'd make it for three months sometimes, or sometimes I wouldn't make it home from the meeting. Um, you know, it just it just didn't take. Any reason for that? Anything that you look back on and sort of see as a the cause? Well, even though I haven't had a drink now for something like 790 days, who's <laughs> counting? But I, I, um, I haven't quit. Uh, and I think the idea of quitting uh, was just too big for me to handle. I, could, I couldn't cope with that. And I think the idea of powerlessness just didn't work for me. I was powerless, so I drank on the way home. And I accept that may not be their meaning, for powerlessness, but um, that's how it affected me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, it's – there are certain things that people align themselves to quite easily and there are other things that grate very badly, I guess. And you can't, you can't knock off those rough edges very quickly, I don't think. Yes. Yeah. So what was it about AA that you thought could help you then? I mean, so if you went back – well, it was the place to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I go to a Salvation Army church, which is right next to the old Miracle Haven. I don't know if you know Miracle Haven in New South no. Wales, or next to the Duralong Transformation Centre now. Uh, and so the church was always heavily attended by people, uh, heavily uh, into what they call addiction. And so I knew a lot about AA. Um and so I knew a lot of people that went there and I knew a lot of people that had their lives changed there. So it was, uh, yeah, it made sense for me to go there. Yeah, yeah. So what, what caused you to sort of leave AA and, and look for something else then? Look, I, look, I have to say, you know, because I still go to AA, you know, but uh, I stopped going after I was abused. Uh I, I, I was having a bust and I admitted it and I got abused and dressed down in front of everyone. Um, and so I stopped going. Yeah. Uh, and I should, I should have put, I should have pushed ahead. Uh, well, no, shoulds. Uh, might've been, it might've been better to, to push ahead, but uh, I didn't at that stage, unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. You can't control others. That's for sure. No, you, you, you can't. And I don't carry any resentments about it nowadays, <laughs> maybe tiny yeah. ones, but I don't, I don't really carry resentments about it now. But, yeah, at that stage, I wasn't as developed as I am as a person at this stage, and I, I just certainly wasn't uh, able to cope with that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think a lot of people um, have – I would say you're dealing with a group of people who have problems, and so each person yes. has their problem, and it's easy to get – um, I guess take offence at another person who has problems when they direct yes. at it back at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, you're not alone there. That's for sure. And I'm going to the same AA meeting now. Yeah. And, uh, and, well, I'm not at the moment because we're in lockdown. <laughs> but when we're not in lockdown, I go along there. And I yeah. love it. They're a great bunch of blokes, and it's a very accepting place. And because it's a rehab AA. Uh, Everyone can turn up there, not just alcoholics, but people with drug problems, people with gambling problems. It doesn't really matter. Everyone's everyone's allowed and everyone's welcome there. Yeah. So um, how did you sort of 
search for, find out about, get informed about smart recovery. Yeah, I, I rang. Uh, I, I, I just been through a horrible time, and I was. Uh, I can remember I was laying on my bed. I was just totally miserable, and totally defeated. And I just rang the Alcohol and Drug Information Service, and I said, "Is there somewhere other than AA that I can go?" Uh, and uh, that was about eleven years ago. And they put me onto Smart Recovery. And I used to travel forty-five minutes down the coast once a week to go to this uh, little little Smart Recovery meeting, run by a couple of uh, retired school teachers, who uh, took a hold of me and taught me the things I needed to know and ultimately are responsible for, uh, well, I'm responsible for where I am now, but ultimately uh, sort of we're a catalyst for where I am now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All you need is a good example, I think, to um, yes. to give you that spark to want to want to be like them, want to be different. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, someone who's not going to take any credit. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, didn't take, they, they didn't take any of my BS. So they, they threw it back. Yeah. 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 Good bullshit detectors help. Yeah. Yeah. So how did things start to change initially? Uh, initially, uh, I felt completely, uh, I felt powerless. I felt completely uh, unable to, to do anything I said I could do. In fact, I felt like I no longer existed, just like a shell. And whatever I said I would do, I wouldn't do it. And what I said I wouldn't do, I would do. And this is the kind of defeat I was in. And I just wanted to learn to keep promises to myself. And so when I went there, they challenged me to take a day off drinking uh, before the next week. Uh, now, this might have been after I was there for a couple of weeks. Now, I always took a day off drinking because I would get so sick most weeks that there was usually a day I didn't drink. But nevertheless, this is what I decided to do, not drink for one day. And I succeeded. And from that, it was like a little muscle growing. Uh, and I thought, well, I can do more. So how did it feel achieving that? As you say, it's like a muscle growing, but what's the feeling like when you've actually achieved that? It's a little bit like returning to yourself. Uh, it's probably not a feeling. It's more a thought, I guess. Um, I was chuffed. Yeah. I, I, I was amazed. I, I was amazed. I was really proud of myself. I mean... Yeah, today, 790 days in at this stage, uh, one day doesn't necessarily seem like much, but that was like a mountain at that stage. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. So what is what was it about the meetings that I guess you warmed, warmed to? Right, well, probably two things. And, and, and they were acting alone. I mean, I had other counsellors. I went to rehabs along the way. But there was probably two things. I learned to think of the world in a different way. So I didn't think about right and wrong, should and shouldn't, uh, must and mustn't anymore. I thought about harmful and I thought about helpful, but I no longer thought about things in a shaming sort of way. And I think that was very helpful for me. The other thing I learned was that I was capable of making choices. Even when I chose to drink, I was fully present for that choice. And I made that choice to drink, which means if I was choosing to drink, I could choose not to drink. So with those foundations, I just moved incrementally forward. Yeah. You sort of take you back to that um, no right and wrong, no black and white thing. I think it's really important to understand that 
it's a continuum that you're not right and wrong. You're just less right or less wrong, you know, than than the other alternative. But it's not it's not this polar opposites. It's just this continuum in between that you're somewhere on the spectrum of belief about you know whether you're doing well or whether you're not doing well. Yeah, and it's more about the wellness rather about the rightness and wrongness uh, of it. For, for me, there's only one person in the world that can tell me if something is right or wrong, and that's God. And in my experience, he doesn't bother telling yeah. me that. So, but harmful or helpful was just something that I really could get behind straight away. Yeah, it's it's a pretty simple uh, approach, isn't it? It's yeah. one, of the, um, one of the things I learned in mine was to actively do nothing to make the situation worse. And yes. as a child of an alcoholic, I would often make it worse. Yeah. And I learned that my responsibility was to not make it worse. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm living by that at the moment. I'm homeschooling four kids and uh, my mental health at the moment is not what I'd want it to be. And I desperately want off this medication I'm on, but I'm doing what you're saying. I'm not doing anything to make it worse. I'm not going off the medication. <laughs> I'm waiting till I see my doctor. And I'm not picking up the drink that I've been wanting to pick up because both of those things yeah. would make it worse. And then there's the four kids in the house being homeschooled who would have to put up with me being a lunatic. And that's just not okay. That's not fair. <laughs> no, that's not fair anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, uh, we might take another short break there. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And I'm talking with Steve, and we're talking about recovery in Smart Recovery. So, Steve, before the um, break, we were talking about the impact of Smart Recovery on you. But do you want to talk about yes. sort of being a member of Smart Recovery and, I guess, how the meetings work? Well, I, I think it's, it's 
wonderful to go somewhere where people understand me and where I feel fully accepted. I mean, that's the first thing. When you get there, you do a bit of a check-in. People ask you how your last seven days went. Uh, We we don't go too far out seven days. It's normally about our last seven days and the next seven days, and we don't tell our our history very, very often. That doesn't happen much. Then after everyone's had a bit of a chat, normally we sort of pick up a bit of a theme that's running through and we'll sort of, uh, we might talk about urges for the meeting and how we cope with urges and people get tips off one another. But then the most important part of the meeting to me is really the part where you're leaving and we set a goal for the week. And that's become continually more hard for me because I've been going so long and the goals are getting smaller and smaller. But this idea of saying over the next seven days I'm going to do this then going out and trying to stick at that has really been what's made my recovery work yeah so what sort of things have you addressed as part of that well yeah obviously originally I I mean I started by addressing the drinking yeah first it was one day off drink and then it was two days off drink and then I'd allow myself to drink three days a week and then it was five times a fortnight and then I'd wouldn't drink until a certain time of night and I wouldn't uh, I, I would make sure that I could uh, drive a car by 9 a.m in the morning so that limited the amount I drink uh, and things like that and later on it gets down into sort of uh, well I'm going to live my life being grateful and I'm going to take time out each day to to, to be grateful uh, so it, it might be about lifestyle I'm going to go for a walk each day this week or I'm going to do some yoga and so, yeah, you really talk about life, a lot of set goals uh, around your future that way. Yeah. Yeah. So in uh, smart recovery meetings, it's not restricted to a particular problem like alcohol or drugs or gambling or whatever. So what's the benefit, do you feel, of having that different experience in a meeting? As I've, I think I've already said, that's not new to me because because I go to an AA that's a recovery AA. I'm used to that there that people come along with all different kinds of problems. Really, I think we're mostly very similar. Yeah, coping with urges is the same for us. Establishing a lifestyle uh, balance is the same for us. Setting a goal is the same for all of us. I don't think, I, I don't know if I can point out a particular benefit, but I can't point out any downside to it. Yeah. So I guess having newcomers in the meeting is something that in a 12-step fellowship, newcomers are treated special. So are they treated specially in a smart meeting? Well, I think in a sense it's more special. I mean, when you go to AA... You know, you, you need to listen to the blokes who have 10 years up or 20 years up. I mean, you need to hang with the 3%. They're, they're the guys that know what's happening. Yeah, when, when you come along to smart recovery, you're understood to have answers inside your own self. And so everyone is treated as though they're special. Everyone's treated as though they're capable. Uh, and everyone gets to witness both their own selves and each other uh, you know, use these capabilities and overcome their issues. Yeah, okay. And I guess the other thing about SMART is, the sort of the difference is that you can become a facilitator. So have you done that? Mm. 
I have become a facilitator. It, it was a, it was a real honor and a privilege. I did stop after a while. I found that I was feeling anxious, and I hope I do get back into it at some stage. But it was it was definitely a privilege to be there for others. And one of the things I liked was people would say they came along and they didn't feel judged, and uh, and how special that was to them. Yeah, there's a lot of what stigma associated with drugs and alcohol, that's for sure. It's, mm. It is good to find a place where you're not judged and where people are interested in, in you and not your behaviour. Yes, absolutely. So what sort of things has SMART enabled you to do with your life now? Yeah, I'd like to give you some sort of a glowing life to look at. I guess... I, I haven't gone on and developed a great career or anything like that, but I am raising four grandkids and I think I'm doing that pretty well. And I don't think that I would have been able to do that without my relationship with Smart. Uh, that, that would have been bad for me, but it would have been worse for them because they needed someone to step up and do that and put them first. Yeah. So what about your relationships then with your children and your wife? Yeah, it's, uh, my relationships with my sons uh, are glowing, I would say. They're, they're very good. They're, they're, they're the younger ones. And the relationship with my daughters is, yeah, sometimes we struggle a little bit there uh, in the sense that they saw a lot of my earlier behaviour that the boys didn't get to see. And also, I guess, because there's been issues in their life uh, that we've, we've struggled with as well. My relationship with my wife is wonderful. Uh, I, I was just very blessed. I met my wife when I was 16 and I, I don't think I had any particular sort of wisdom how to choose a good life partner, but I, I chose the best one going and she's a very accepting, uh, forgiving and loving woman and uh, I'm truly blessed to have her in my life. Yeah. So has, has she sought any help to deal with living with you? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that would make sense to do that. Uh, I think she probably gets most of her help through the church. She's part of the Salvation Army and she, uh, you know, she, she gets a lot of solace there. But she's, she's a unit, you know, and she's uh, very self-sufficient and she doesn't seem to, need, seem to need the help that I so often need. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So I guess... You know, we don't like to talk too much about the future, but, you know, have you got any sort of idea where you want to go now? Do you want to just keep on, keep on keeping on, or have you got something special you'd like to achieve? I don't know if there's anything necessarily special, but, look, my life is still lonely. It can still be boring and a bit empty. I would like to fill my life up with something constructive. So some way... Somehow, I'd like to become stable enough to contribute to this world. That may be through employment or maybe through volunteer work. I'm not really sure what it's going to look like, but that's probably the next step forward to me. Uh, that sense that I'm contributing and the time that it will take up is going to be really important to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to feel valued and as if you're achieving something. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just that, you know, that, that has been achieved, yeah. Absolutely. So I guess then talking about your grandchildren and your relationship with them, so what, what sort of things are you able to do now that you couldn't do with your kids? Yeah, that's, uh, I can stay sober. 
Which uh, is <laughs> pretty good. Look, uh, I, I was in general a good dad. And I, I did all the things with my uh, kids that I do with these guys. Yeah, we went camping, we went bushwalking, we went to the beach, we went on picnics, uh, you know, and I, and I played energetically with the, them. And I can do that with uh, these grandkids and with my other grandkids. I've got 11 of them. And, uh, you know, so I, it's probably not real different, but I can. I can't set a better example of it. And I can put them first. And that's what's crucially important that these kids are put first. Yeah, that's often, I guess, drugs and alcohol, any other person is between you and the bottle or you and the and the substance. Mm. And they don't understand that. They don't understand that they're in the way. Yeah. And you know, there's a direct line to the to the drink, but they're in the way. <laughs> Fortunately for me, I was never a dishonest drinker. So everything I did, I did in the light of day. So that wasn't such uh, such a big issue. There's no one sort of running around trying to stop me from doing stuff. But but look, uh, I think it's a privilege to to live my life in a in a in a better way uh, for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Would you like to sort of say anything more about SMART and, and the sort of things that it does that have benefited you? Look, I, yeah, I've probably already made the point, but what, what happened over a 10-year period is I got myself back. I got ownership of myself back. Where first of all, I felt like I didn't exist. It was only the faint, faintest glimmer of my existence still there. Uh, bit by bit, as I made goals, and I achieved goals and I made bigger goals and I achieved them, I managed to see myself and I managed to own myself. And uh, it's something I'm very proud of uh, and it's something I deeply treasure and it's something I believe that Smart Recovery can do for others. Yeah. So in Smart Recovery, other members contribute to the, I guess, the the conversation about recovery. Mm. So what sort of things have you got got off other people Mm. and and helped your understanding of your situation yeah it's an interesting question because i uh i find nowadays i don't speak as much and it's not that i'm hearing anything new i'm I'm probably hearing a lot of the same stuff i've heard for a number of years now but it's time for other people to stand up and show that they um they know their way out yeah, if I was to take up all the all, all the airspace, I don't think that would be a good thing. So I, I like to sit back now and hear others talk about what they're going to do to to transform their lives. What works for me, and it's probably a little bit, might be a little bit selfish in some ways, but when they come in and they're struggling and they're having a hard time, it reminds me that I used to be there and um, that I don't want to be there ever again. And so that's how they help me mostly. And I do hope that I return the favour by being there with 790 days up to show them, well, that can happen for them as well. So I hope hope it works both ways. I think it does because, you know, the importance is having people around who've who've done that. Uh, It doesn't matter how they've done it, but they're there and if they want to, they can talk to you about it. But it's, it's not up to you to tell them. Tell them how to do it. It's, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't have any uh, deep wisdom. I, I mean, I used to think I did. I used to want to tell everyone everything that I thought they needed to know. But the truth is, they know it themselves, and they do. They find they find their way to it as they come along. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. I think that's that's about it. If there's anybody listening who'd like to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia, you can visit smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details of their meetings and contact information, or you can call them directly on o two. Uh, That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Steve, uh, who's a member of Smart Recovery Australia, for joining us and talking about his recovery experience. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. I hope you'll be able to listen again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and be joined by Diane, who's a member of Alan Family Groups. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR.